scripture reading for this morning is from Genesis chapter 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he and who is born in your house shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings and peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety-nine years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, 
Well, last week we looked at Genesis chapter 16 and we read there of Abram's failure to trust the Lord. God had made all these promises to Abraham from Genesis 12 moving forward. This call that he had placed upon him to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, to leave his homeland, to go to the land that God would show him. He promised to give him descendants. He promised to give him that land. And Abram was to trust God's promises and go. And by the time we got to Genesis chapter 16, we found that Abram was 86 years old. He had not yet had a child. Sarai was barren, and Sarai recommended to Abram, and Abram took Hagar to be a, a wife to him. And so Abram decided that he would seek to have an offspring through Hagar. And we saw that on the one hand, God tremendously blessed Hagar, and yet we also saw that this was not the way in which God was going to fulfill his promise through Abram. It would be through Sarai, his wife, that he would have the promised child who would eventually lead to these descendants that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand in the desert. That was Genesis 16, Abram's remarkable, grievous, horrible failure to trust the Lord. Here in Genesis 17, Abram is 99. 13 years have passed since that time in which Abram had failed to believe God, had failed to trust his promises, had failed to walk in obedience before God. Promises had been made to Abram that he would bear children, that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand in the desert, that the land would be his and his descendants after him, and he failed to trust these promises. Thirteen years have passed. You can imagine Abram beginning to wonder, has God turned away from me? You can imagine Abram beginning to wonder, has God given up on me? Has my failure nullified God's promise? Have I outsinned God's grace? Now, you, you may be asking the same kinds of questions this morning. You've spent your whole life running from God. And so you wonder now, is it too late for me? Or you've confessed your sins and you put your trust in Jesus for your salvation, but you have strayed so far away from him since that day. And so you wonder now, will he take me back? Or you have some besetting sin that's got a grip on you. It has you by the throat. And even though you, you try to overcome and you try to walk in obedience, it seems like more often than not you fail. And so you wonder, has God given up on me? In one way or another, you may be asking yourself, have I outsinned God's grace? Abram had 13 years to wrestle with that question. For 13 years, as far as we can tell, he had not heard from God. For 13 years, he had still not born a son. There was still no evidence that God was with him. There was still no evidence that he hadn't, in fact, outsinned God's grace. And then in Genesis 17, God appears to Abram. God comes along and reaffirms his covenant grace to him. 
God comes along and calls this man who was saved by his faith. We knew that from Genesis chapter 15. Calls this man who is saved by his faith to wholehearted obedience to God. And then he gave him a sign to assure him that his promises to Abram would not fail. The grace of the covenant, the obedience of faith to which he was called, the sign of the promise, these things aren't just for Abram. The New Testament tells us that they are for all who are Abram's descendants, spiritually speaking, through faith in Jesus Christ. People who were saved by faith in God just like Abram was. The grace of the covenant that we read about in this passage is for you if your trust is in Jesus Christ for your salvation. The call upon your life if you are a follower of Jesus Christ is to the obedience of faith just as Abram was called to obedience that flowed from his faith. And the promise to which this sign points is a promise that is for you as well if your trust is in Jesus. So three things we're going to look at this morning. First, the grace of the covenant. The grace of the covenant. Second, the obedience of faith. And then third, the sign of the promise. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this marvelous text. We thank you for all that it does to point us to your grace. And we pray, O oh God, that we would take it to heart that we would put our trust ever more deeply in you, the God of the covenant, who comes to his people in grace and acts toward us for our good all the time. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, the grace of the covenant. That word covenant appears 13 times in Genesis chapter 17. And there's four things that we're told about it in Genesis chapter 17. And we're gonna spend most of our time in this sermon in this first point. So when I get to the end of it, don't think, oh my golly, we're only a third of the way through. We're not. Most of the time we'll be here in this first point. So four things we're told about God's covenant. First, that it's unilateral. Second, that it is gracious. Third, that it is eternal. And then fourth, that it is personal. So unilateral, gracious, eternal, and personal. Let's, let's break those down. First of all, it's unilateral. Now, in Genesis 15, remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 15 and that great covenant ceremony that, that was a, a replication of, a, 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 you know, a, an image of something that happened in the ancient Near East routinely between greater kings and lesser kings. Animal parts would be cut. It's a, it's a gory chapter, but it's a beautiful chapter. Go back and read it. You know, animals would be cut in half, and the greater king and the lesser king would walk between the animal parts, and it was a way of signifying uh, an oath that they were taking. May it be to me if I fail to keep my oath, if I fail to keep my promise, whether it be as the greater king, usually to provide protection to the lesser king and his kingdom, or to the lesser king to fail to provide tribute to the greater king. They both were to walk between those parts, and the walking between the split animals was a way of signifying, may it be done to me if I fail to keep the terms of the covenant. May it be done to me if I fail to keep my oath. 
And then, of course, in Genesis chapter 15, the, the, you know, the beautiful example of God initiating this covenant ceremony with Abram, and then God himself, represented by the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, walking between the animal parts. Abram not going. So this wonderful picture of grace that we'll get back to in a minute, but the main thing is initiated by God. Unilateral. The same thing happens here in this passage. God is the one who initiates the covenant. He confirms it in Genesis chapter 17, and he sets the terms here in Genesis chapter 17. So the ceremony that indicated God's promise of grace took place in Genesis 15. The terms, the conditions, the the affirmation of authority That happens here in Genesis chapter 17. It's a further unfolding of this one covenant that God has made with Abraham. So he confirms it. He says here in verse 1, I am God Almighty. Hebrew words there, El Shaddai. Now, not entirely sure what the word Shaddai means. There's lots of different ways in which that is, uh, can be taken, but really it boils down to, most commentators think, it refers to something of God's power and something of his uh, capacity or ability to provide or even to provide protection. So this powerful protector, God is saying, I am El Shaddai. And he comes and makes his covenant with Abram. You see it in verse 4. Verse 4, God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God initiates the covenant. Now, you have to appreciate the fact that this did not happen in the ancient Near East. There's no record in ancient Near Eastern literature of a deity approaching a person or a people and saying, I am going to initiate a covenant with you. I'm going to enter into a covenant relationship with you. It just doesn't happen except for here. (laughs) This God comes to Abram and says, I want to enter into a covenant relationship with you. No obligation to. And yet he does. The very fact that God moves toward Abram and says, I want to enter into covenant with you is already, before the terms are even unpacked or promises made, an indication of his grace. He sets the terms of the covenant as well. He says in verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. And then he says later in the the passage, he's going to say, verses 9 through 14, I want you to put this mark in your body and in the, the, uh, the body of your male descendants after you and all the males that are in your household at this time. These are the terms. These are the expectations that this God has of Abram. We're going to come back to that when we talk about the obedience of faith in our second point. So he confirms it, he sets the terms, and then he reaffirms his authority. Now, he had already made his authority as God clear in Genesis chapter 12, when he calls Abram to obedience by leaving Ur and going to the land that this God said he would show Abram. He showed it in Genesis chapter 15, when he says, I will do these things for you. And he does it here, again, in Genesis chapter 17, not, through, not only through the terms that he sets and identifying himself as the Almighty One, as he does, but also in the fact that he changes Abram's name to Abraham. 
and he changes Sarai's name to Sarah. Even that name changing, which, you know, we rightly read that and go, wow, what an example of God's grace. You know, Abram will now be the father of a multitude of nations, Abraham. But recognize that in covenant relationships like this, the more powerful king had the authority to change the name of the lesser king, which was so central to understanding that lesser king's identity. Right? So God comes along and says, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. I am setting these expectations upon you. I'm setting the terms of the covenant, and I'm changing your name. God is the one who initiates the covenant in every respect. God's covenant is unilateral. But second, God's covenant is gracious. Now look back through, just you know, pick up in verse 4 and start noticing with me all the I haves and the I wills. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of nations. Verse 8, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come. Verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. And then down to verse 8, and I really got to get glasses, man. I'm telling you, these numbers are just too small. Verse 8, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All these I wills. And then jump down to verse 16. I will bless her concerning his wife Sarah. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. All these things that God is going to do, or he said, I've already done them, even though he hasn't actually had any of these offspring yet. God is saying, it's as good as done because I've said I'm going to do it. God is gracious. All the I wills and all the I haves throughout this passage. What God is doing here is what he's been doing all along. From Genesis 12 to Genesis 15, now to Genesis 17, he keeps amping up his promises. You know, reaffirming them, but at the same time further unpacking them so that Abram can see more of them in all of their glory and all of their grace. You will have countless descendants. Sarai will have a child next year. The land will be yours and your descendants after you. Even the renaming, which was an indication of God's authority, is an affirmation of God's promise. Right? It's grace. Grace from beginning to end. Grace to this man who had failed God so miserably. I love the way Ian Duguid puts it. Over 13 long years between the end of Genesis 16 and the beginning of Genesis 17, Abram had plenty of time to reflect on his own unfaithfulness to God. He had time to think about his own failure. So he was well prepared to recognize and appreciate the graciousness with which God came to him. In spite of everything, the great king appeared once again to the man who had let him down and confirmed his covenant with him. God's promises are not destroyed by man's failure, for our God is a God of grace. So God's covenant is unilateral. God's covenant is gracious. God's covenant is eternal. Look at verse 7. Goodness gracious. Verse 7, here we go. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. That word establish, that word establish can also be translated maintain. So there's this idea within that word of initiator, but sustainer. 
I will establish my covenant with you. I will maintain it. And then verse 7, verse 13, verse 19, the word eternal. Everlasting is how it's translated in the ESV, but it can also be translated eternal, which eternal, everlasting, same thing, right? The covenant is called eternal by God. Now, God has expectations for how his covenant people will live. Again, we'll get into those in the second point. But the obedience that he calls for from Abram is not something that establishes the covenant. God says, I establish the covenant. I have declared this covenant to be eternal. The covenant is grounded not in the you musts, but in the I wills and I have. It's unilateral, it's gracious, it's eternal, and finally, it's personal. The essence, the heart of the promises that God makes to Abraham in verses 7 and 8 boil down to this. I will be your God and you will be my people. The covenant ceremony, I'm sorry, the circumcision, it's all a way of marking them off as belonging to God's. And God is saying through these great and precious promises to Abraham and his offspring, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the theme that runs throughout the Bible. It is the covenant promise of God. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's like the spine that holds your Bible together. This covenant promise of God. God's covenant is unilateral, gracious, eternal, and personal. How should you respond to that? Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, let me urge you to respond to this unilateral, gracious initiative of the great king with submission to him. Enter into this covenant. Your options are either to enter into this covenant with this God who moves toward you in your need for him and offers you his grace, offers to bind himself to you, you can either enter into that covenant as the servants that we are, or we can reject it to our own peril. So if your trust is not in Jesus Christ for your salvation, enter into this covenant promise of God, appropriate it for yourself by believing that Jesus Christ will be your savior, that as we'll see at the end, he took the curse of the covenant in your place. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, then let these covenant promises, let the grace that is so evident in this passage just wash over you like like a hot shower after you've been outside on a cold day. All day long, your, your, your bones are just aching because you're so cold. And then you step in that hot shower and it just feels so good. Listen, this life that we live, this world that we live in, the, the sin that clings so closely all leave us feeling as though we've been out in the cold all day long and God's great and precious covenant grace is intended to be like that hot shower just warming you up at the end of a cold day let these great and gracious promises warm your soul second let's move on and talk about the obedience of faith Abram's faith finds expression in his devotion to God. 
It's the important principle to grasp here. Abram's faith finds expression in his devotion to God. We know, again, from Genesis chapter 15, that Abram was declared righteous by God through faith. He did not earn standing with God. He was not saved because he circumcised himself and all the males in his household. He wasn't saved because of anything that he had done, any work that he was, had performed. He was saved, the Bible is clear, Old Testament and New, through faith in the promise of God. He was declared righteous in God's sight by faith, not works. But God does call for a response from Abram. His faith was to find expression in obedience. His faith was to find expression through devotion to God. And so you have in this center section between all the promises, all the I wills and the I haves in verses 4 through 8, and all the I wills in verses 16 and following, between those sections are the you shalls. You shall do this. You must do this. God calls for a response of obedience from Abram. And of course, we saw it right there in verse 1. Walk before me and be blameless. That phrase, walk before me, was a phrase that was used to describe how a servant lived before his king or his master. Be blameless is a word that talks about wholehearted devotion to God. So what Abram is called to is to have this relationship with God of a servant before a king or a master and to walk in wholehearted obedience to that king or that master. Abram's faith, he was saved by faith, was to find expression through his devotion. Now, the call for devotion got intensely personal, didn't it? I mean, circumcision is an intensely personal act of devotion. It would be, to Abraham, a regular reminder that he was not his own, that he was set apart as belonging to God. It would be a reminder to him that the I will be your God has a corresponding and you shall be my people. The same principle applies to every believer. We too are saved by grace through faith, like Abraham. Verses 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're saved by grace through faith alone, but as Martin Luther said, the grace that saves is never alone. Echoing what James says in his letter, that faith without works is dead. Paul in Romans then describes this obedience of faith that we're talking about, right? Faith is the foundation. We're saved by faith. That leads to obedience, to devotion to God. Paul describes his ministry the whole point of what he and the other apostles are called to do in terms of bringing about the obedience of faith from among the Gentiles. So listen to this, Romans 1.5. 
Speaking of Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So as with Abraham, so too with every follower of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are called to obedience that springs from faith. My question for you is, has your devotion to God ever gotten intensely personal? I don't mean in terms of what it looked like for Abraham. But in what comes, you know, for instance, to your sexuality, is your devotion to God evident there? When it comes to the way you spend your money, is your devotion to God evident there? When it comes to the way you spend your time, is your devotion to God evident there? Or do you hold those things as your own and not belonging to God in the same way that Abraham might have been tempted to say, that's a little too close? The good news, <laughs> the good news is this. Even our ability to respond to God's gracious initiative toward us such that there is not only the desire but the ability to bring about the obedience that comes from faith, even that is a gift of God's grace. We can't manufacture that. We can't stir ourselves up in order to produce fruit that God will be pleased with. Old Testament and New Testament, there was always a deeper circumcision that needed to take place. It's a circumcision of the heart. As early as Deuteronomy chapter 30, actually chapter 10, but chapter 30, verse 6 as well, you have the, this, these, let me just read it. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, what does the law of God boil down to? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Later, Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus takes that up when asked what's the greatest commandment, puts those two together in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, summarizing and giving a picture of what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Obedience to this is not something that we can enable ourselves to do. We need the heart circumcision that I just read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And that heart circumcision, Paul tells us in Colossians, in a pretty confusing passage, that heart circumcision is done by Jesus. Now, I'm going to read Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, and just give me a second. I'll unpack it. Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 11, in him, that is, in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So that is the circumcision performed by Christ. And then jumping down to verse 13, we get a little bit more clarity. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That idea of being dead in our sin, of needing to have forgiveness. 
which Paul equates here in Colossians 2 with a heart circumcision, a circumcision of the flesh, not made with hands, but in the circumcision of Christ that results in a new life. That is something that is the New Testament equivalent to Deuteronomy chapter 36 when it says the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. The obedience that comes from the heart, the obedience of faith that must be the response of anyone who's in this gracious covenant with God, that obedience itself is a gift of God's grace. It is a good thing to be in a covenant relationship with the living God and a dreadful thing to be apart from it. And that's what the sign tells us. The sign is the sign of God's promise. What did the sign mean to Abraham? The function of the sign for Abraham was to confirm the promises. Remember, all the you wills concerning circumcision are bracketed by the promises, the I haves and the I wills before, the I haves and the I wills after, preceded by the promises of Genesis chapter 15. The sign of circumcision to Abraham and his offspring after him served to confirm the promises of God to them, even as it also served as a visible reminder that they were not their own, that they belonged to God. From birth, they had been set apart as God's. So this covenant sign was given to Abraham and his offspring to mark them off as people to whom promises had been made and to mark them off as people who were devoted to another. In that way, it's a lot like a wedding ring. This wedding ring was given to me by my wife, Wendy. In the giving of this ring, in our marriage ceremony, she made promises to me. Vows, for better or for worse, sickness and in health, till death do us part. So this ring on my hand signifies that I am one to whom promises have been made. It also at the same time signifies that I am one who is devoted to another. This ring was given to me by Wendy and not any other woman. So this Sign, this ring serves as a sign. I'm one to whom promises have been made. I'm one who is devoted to another. Circumcision for Abraham and his offspring functioned in the same way. It indicated, it signified that they were a people to whom promises had been made and they were a people who were devoted from birth to another. The ring, like circumcision, confirmed the truths that God will keep his promises. How does this apply to us? Well, from the New Testament, we learn that the promise to Abraham was primarily spiritual. We know this from what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose going on was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. The promise boiled down to this. God saying to Abraham and to all who follow him, including his spiritual descendants who put faith in Jesus Christ, the true and ultimate son of Abraham, righteousness will be given to those who believe the promise. 
Righteousness will be counted to those who put their faith in Christ. The sign pointed to that promise. And if you think about it, back in Genesis chapter 17, even the land promise that's given there, God says in the covenant, in the covenant promise in chapter 17, that he would give the land to Abraham. But we know that Abraham never actually lived in the land. So even for Abraham, we know from the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11, the land was never about a strip of land in Palestine. The land for Abraham was always about the city with foundations, whose builder and architect is God. And the land for you and for me, if our trust is in Jesus Christ, is not for a strip of land in Palestine. It is, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, that the meek shall inherit the earth. The promise is ultimately spiritual and points toward an eternal blessing. Righteousness from God by which we are made right with him. And then this grand and glorious promise that when all things are made new, we shall dwell here with God. Is a sign given in the New Testament to confirm that promise as well? And, and we believe the answer to that is yes, that sign is baptism. Peter picks this up in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. Peter said to these Jewish people who were witnessing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter says this, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that heart circumcision that Jesus does on us so that we will be forgiven and be right with God is now signified, Peter says, by baptism. It's no longer a physical circumcision. It's a heart circumcision affected by Christ, and the right response is to be baptized. And so, Peter says to all these, if you will, about to be first-generation Christians, repent and be baptized. But then he goes on and says things that would have made total sense to them as inheritors of the covenant promises. He says this, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. They would have understood this new sign still applies to the household. This new sign, like circumcision and like a wedding ring, that points to the fact that God will keep his promise to grant righteousness, right standing with God, to all who put their faith in Jesus, what Peter talks about in terms of forgiveness of sin. And this sign that signifies that this person and his household, as we see in Acts chapter 16, is now devoted and set apart to God, this sign has changed, but its significance, what it points to, has not. It still points to righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. It still points to a person and his household set apart as belonging to God in a special privileged relationship with him as inheritors of the promise. Read Paul in Romans chapter 4 to learn more about the benefits of being in a covenant relationship with God as an inheritor of the promise. The signs changed. 
This is what we believe as a Presbyterian church. The sign has changed. It's baptism to be applied to those who profess faith in Christ and the children in their household. The sign has changed. The significance is the same as it was for Abraham. So it is for us today. Like Abraham in the Old Testament, we believe the sign is given because the promise endures. Why has the sign changed? Because all the blood that was spilled in the Old Testament, the blood of the animals that were separated in Genesis chapter 15, the blood from this operation that was done on Abraham and his male offspring, the blood of all the sacrifices that would flow out of the Mosaic law, all the blood that pointed to the need for a lamb to be slain, a spotless and perfect lamb whose blood would make atonement finally and ultimately for sin, that blood was shed at the cross. There's a warning in Genesis chapter 17 You see it in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from the people. He has broken my covenant. How is it that this God who has promised such grace, an eternal covenant, a binding covenant, a covenant made with sinful people, also at the same time be a just God who will not fail to cut off those who fail to keep covenant? And the answer is Jesus is the one who was cut off in your place. His blood was shed that forgiveness might be granted. The Holy Spirit might be poured out. Sin might be washed away. And you might be right with God. Put your trust in Jesus for your salvation. He was cut off so that you never would be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great passage. We thank you for the reminder that your covenant toward, with your people is one of grace. It's one that's initiated by you. It is for your glory, but it is for the good of all with their trust in you. Lord, help us to take to heart that you call us to obedience, to devotion that springs from our faith in you, but help us to remember that good news, that we are given by you the ability to bear fruit as we abide in Christ and are not burdened with an, a, an impossible expectation to produce fruit by which we might be accepted. Or do you initiate by grace, you save by grace, you enable us to bear fruit entirely by grace. And Lord, help us to remember as we consider the sign of our baptism, whenever we see one being done here, whenever we reflect on our own baptism, whether it be as an adult or as an infant, Lord, help us to remember that what that sign points to is ultimately what you have done. To rescue people who believe what the sign signifies, that all who put their trust in you shall be saved. We ask that you would do this in us by your spirit, and we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen.